Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Hello, hello, it's the nose. It's our weekly cultural roundtable. Uh, in the second part of our show today, we'll be talking about The Outlaws, uh, a dramedy, a British dramedy available on Prime Video. Uh, it's basically the creation of Steve Merchant, uh, the Stephen Merchant, the beanpole uh, who often accompanied Ricky Gervais on his adventures earlier in his career. Uh, but perhaps most notably, uh, it stars, uh, well, in its ensemble cast, it stars Christopher Walken, America cannot get enough of Christopher Walken. <laughs> and and he delivers in this. I, I think no matter what our panel decides about the outlaws, uh, Walken does not disappoint. Uh, but we're going to begin with uh, something a little bit different, something very different, really. First of all, let me t- tell you uh, who's on the panel today. Sam Hattleman works in music, public relations, and hosts the Sam Hattleman Show at Radio Free Brooklyn. Rich Holland is a principal at CoLab, founder of Free Center, and commissioner on cultural affairs for the city of Hartford. Irene Papoulis teaches uh, writing at Trinity College. So, yes, uh, in our first segment, we're going to talk about somebody who I'm going to be honest, I was not familiar with heading into last weekend. Uh, I've grown, as I get older, accustomed to not recognizing the name of the musical act on Saturday Night Live. I'm sorry, Sam, I did not know who Gunna was going into Saturday either. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Uh, But I also didn't know who Jared Carmichael was. Uh, He came out, he made references to a special, he made references uh, especially to the fact that he, uh, I think he said something to the fact, fact that he said, I've only been gay for 48 hours or something. You realize there's something going on there. And then he kind of took over the stage, did this uh, tremendous uh, monologue in which he played around with the idea of not wanting to talk about Will Smith uh, and Chris Rock without ever saying Chris Rock, uh, Oscars, Will Smith, any of those things, and did a marvelous job with it. I went back and watched some of his earlier work. And then watch Rothaniel, and that's uh, where our panel comes in. But before our panel comes in, let's uh, hear a little bit of this uh, young man. He is uh, a stand-up comedian. He's also had his own series for a couple of years on NBC. Um, here's the new special, and here's him kind of getting things started. One of my last held secrets is my name. My name is not Gerard. Welcome to the show, everybody. I uh, (laughs) thought we were being honest tonight. Gerard's my middle name. Uh, I was given the name Gerard by my brother, Joe. Uh, He's like seven years older than me. They just trusted a kid to name a kid, but whatever. (laughs) I'm thankful for that. (laughs) Without him, I'd have to go by my real name, my first name, which we don't talk about. Uh, my dad named me, uh, he combined his dad's first name and my mom's dad's first name and mushed them together. <laughs> Not to make something elegant, <laughs> like, you know, William Edward or something like that. It's more like Toyotathon. <laughs> All right, so 
Um, that sounds like maybe he's going to do something resembling a conventional comedy special. Uh, that is anything but the case. We'll try to explain it to you without messing up too much of it, although I'm not super worried about that right now. But, um, yeah, maybe Irene get us started here. Uh, I'm guessing... Uh, because we are of a similar age and background that you might not have been too familiar uh, with Gerard Carmichael, who, by the way, I'm informed turned 35 this past week uh, before Saturday Night Live. So what did you think of Rothaniel? Uh I loved it. <laughs> and um, I had seen, I, yeah, I, I had the same experience watching him on Saturday Night Live and also was just so impressed by the by the tightness and elegance of the way he constructed the monologue. And that I saw in in Rothaniel also very much so. And and also he's such a delightful, charming human being. You can just tell. And it was it was beautiful to see him talk about his intimate life in that kind of a comedy show context. Although towards um, towards the end, he insists yeah. that he's not really that charming and he's not even really that nice. Although uh, I don't think I believe him. Uh, I'm kind of with you on this. There's something just extraordinarily charming about this person. Um, so, and part of the charm, though, is saying I I is saying that you know, like this is a front. But of course, it is. Isn't charm always, to some extent, a front? Well, that's like maybe. No, that's that why they be, call it charm. That could be a whole other episode of the Colin McEnroe show, which I would be yeah. eager, eager to do, and you'd have to be on it. So, Rich yeah. Holland, I have to, I have to get this off my chest. I didn't know that you were going to be on the show this week, uh, but I spent a good portion of Rothaniel thinking, you know. Jared Carmichael talks a little bit. There's something similar in the quality of your voices. Uh, I was just thinking it again, just listening to that clip. There's like he's he's kind of doing a Rich Holland impersonation at times, just the way, uh, just the timber of his voice and stuff like that. But that's not what we're here to talk about. Uh, yeah. uh, I, I can't talk to that anyway. My attorneys are dealing with that right, all right now. Yeah, yeah. No, you gotta go, gotta go after him uh, before he gets I see what even you mean, hot. though. Yeah. Yeah. So there's this. First of all, playing that clip again. Uh, I just fell in love with this guy again. And um, and that doesn't actually happen to me much. You know, I usually watch things and I'm cutting them apart and I'm paying attention to how they're put together. And I didn't care, you know, uh, while it was put together beautifully. And I'm sure we'll get to talking about that a bit because we've done so extensively so far. Um, I just fell in love with this dude. And um, he is all my children. He is... Uh, Every moment of my life, uh, for the most part, is the essence of what he was talking about. And um, and I was kind of dumbfounded and so grateful that I was asked to be on the show because I might not have watched this thing, you know, because I, like everybody else, I, I didn't know who he was. I mean, I'd seen him on a couple of shows here and there, um, didn't make such a big impression, but this moment, uh, was his, you know, in a lot of ways, his coming out moment, uh, professionally and in other ways. And um, and it was all put together in a way in which everybody who was doing it knew that they were touching something magnificent and beautiful and that was going to uh, be, you know, this pivotal change in the conversation that we've been having uh, about culture this past month. And everything about this worked. Yes. So, Sam, uh, I'm guessing you already knew who he was. <laughs> um, like very lightly, I'm I'm kind of on your boat. I knew him from the Tyler the Creator interview that uh, he did in 2018 around Flower Boy, and then he was uh, in the skits for Tyler the Creator's album Igor. 
And that's really all I knew about him. I actually spend most of my time thinking about Gerard Carmichael. Like, how is he getting in these rooms? Like, how is he hanging out with Kanye and Jay-Z? Like, what has he done that has warranted him being in these rooms? And I found out very quickly with Rathaniel. Uh, it was conversational. It was honest. And above all else, it was just funny. Like, I'm just so bored with comedy. Like, either you're an old guy on a stoop complaining like, oh, how about that Twitter today? Or you're like doing something that's much more akin to like a sociological uh, conversation in a grad school class, but it's not exactly funny. And this was like introspective and funny. And I don't know. I just I was absolutely blown away. Yeah. So, you know, there's so much there really we could talk for a whole hour about this thing. And it really is so fascinating. I, I, I think I would be comfortable saying in a lot of ways, it's like the best thing I've seen in any genre in 2022. Uh, I mean, I can't really think of anything that has moved me as much and delighted me as much and touched me as much. And, you know, Irene, towards the end, he starts to kind of fall apart. And so that we should say for the entire time that he's doing this, he's seated in a chair in a club. It's the Blue Note in New York. Um, he's he often kind of curls around on himself. Uh, and, and he's there's nobody has ever done any kind of performance uh, with so much time spent touching his face with his hands. He just <laughs> does that constantly. Sometimes he kind of face palms, uh, you know, sometimes he's thinking. He's, but he's – and towards the end, he really kind of almost is curled into a fetal position and he's really kind of having trouble, it appears, mm. deciding what he's going to say next and, and how he's going to proceed. And, and he's doing – he's kind of sharing his thought process a little bit too. He's saying, I'm, I'm trying to think of a joke, but maybe I shouldn't be joking. And, and I, I mean, I'm just sort of wondering. I mean, I, I thought, to Sam's point, well, this is something I haven't seen before. It seems very, very genuine, and, and I, I'm pretty happy to ride with it. But uh, what was your reaction towards the end there? Um, I, I, I was with him. I was completely with him um, in, in, with his, in his genuineness. Uh, then I started thinking later about how, about, about, you know, could that have been, was that studied too? Because there's, there's a lot that happens at the end that feels extremely spontaneous. But was it? How, how spontaneous was it? I started to wonder. But in a way, after I've thought even further about that, I think, you know, does it really matter? As kind of as, as Rich kind of um, sort of suggested, I'm not sure how much it matters or whether it matters or does it change it in any way? Because it's such a I, it, I was thinking about self-revelation. You know, everyone says, oh, everyone wants to expose themselves and reveal themselves. And this is this is but this is a very different kind of self-revelation. It's kind of I'm really going to let you in deep. It's not just I'm going to I'm going to show off or I'm going to sort of make make a performance out of my inner pain. It's really I love how he said at the beginning and I think this is why it's almost like a different kind of genre because at the beginning he said something like I have so many things I want to tell you. And and that brings the you know it's not I have so many things I want to say, it's I want to tell you and and cuz he wants to he wants to tell us. He wants to tell me as a listener. And and um, and it's it, and he and he manages to do that to feel like he's not doing it because he wants to he wants to show off in some kind of way. But he he wants to he really wants to say this is what, it, you know, and the whole theme is secrets that he brings up very early. And, and it's kind of like I'm going to tell you some secrets that are really serious. It's not it's not, um, you know, um, I don't know what the you know, it's not the kind of secret that's like a like scandal. It's more this is what it's really been like for me. And that's so powerful that I almost feel like whether it's studied or not, 
it's totally working. Yeah. Before we go to um, the other panelists, I want to just make sure that people understand, because I'm not sure I may even made it clear. But um, so so a little bit of the structure of this is he in- introduces you to his family, he tells you about various members of his family in a very f- funny way. Um, then he reveals that he's gay uh, and he's managed to reach his mid-30s without having done this in a fairly public-facing career. I just want to say also, I went back and watched some of his old stand-up, and he performs as a straight guy. I mean, he does a whole thing, for example, about dating white women, and he, if white women are willing to go out with them, him, he knows their grandmothers are dead. Um, because otherwise, like, you know, <laughs> otherwise they might see his picture on their phones or something, and it would just be a big, big problem. So, um, so, you know, he does that kind of stuff. So he comes out as gay, and then he reintroduces you to his family, this time those same people, uh, in a pretty unaffirming way, dealing with his gayness. But I just want to, let's play A3 here, Kat. Uh, this, is, this is kind of what comes after the revelation. Look. I'll say this. I actually think that it's important to say this. I believe in the black family. I think that black men should marry black women and have black babies and raise them to be smart, just good citizens, educated. I I think that's very, very important. A hundred percent. I think gay black men should be able to whoever the we want. What? is the consequence. There are no black babies coming from the kind of sex I have, okay? It's all getting flushed. It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. So as you can see, he's still able to be very funny about this kind of stuff. So, so Rich, yeah. Well, maybe we should talk a little bit about the thing that Irene was talking about a little bit. One thing that we sort of debated and tried to get some information about is, did he do all this in just one performance? Is it multiple performances? It seems so incredibly spontaneous, certainly in its final, let's say, two-fifths, that I just can't—I have I had a hard time believing it could be— done over and over again with different audiences. Because the other thing that he does is create this really intimate space there in, in this club. But give me some of your thoughts about this. My thoughts on, um, I think the pacing changed. If you if you watch the edits, if you watch the, uh, the um, shot selections uh, at the beginning when he was doing the jokes that he had on his list to do, um, uh, there was some deliberateness. There was some, um, some, uh, expectedness to how it was cut. There was the shot from behind him where you see the audience while he's talking. There's the, the wide shot from the front. There's the close up to the right. There's, you know, the, the camera positions that allow him to change and pivot. And in a space that size, I don't see that we could get that many cameras in there all at once, you know? So it seemed like different thing, different shots had to come from uh, different performances. Um, however, if you watch as it gets to that back end where he um, does, gets to that point of the show that was known, which was the announcement um, that he's gay, the shot choices reduced dramatically at that point. Um, you don't you don't see as many of these other camera angles come to play anymore. You mostly see one or two camera angles. 
And I get the sense that the front end might have uh, taken, might have occurred over a couple of sequences, but that back end is a thing that happened in one performance. And um, and I get the sense that it has something to do with uh, with that list uh, that I was talking about. I think that we all sh- that folks who are performing show up with this list of what they're going to talk about, right? And then they take a look at how far am I willing to expose? How deeply am I willing to be seen? And you make a list of things that you're willing to show this time more than you've ever shown before. Um, And you get to that point, I think, where you've got everything imaginable on the list. And then you look and you recognize that there's one or two things that aren't there, right? So you take them off the list and you don't share those, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe the next time you share those. So I get the sense that he showed up with this really robust list of things that he was prepared to share and prepared for any of the consequences of sharing them. You know, for example, his mother didn't know he's gay, you know, and that the entire aspect of sharing that with his mother was going to be a really difficult thing for him to do. And, um, and uh, he, you could see him being calculated and thoughtful and recognizing the consequences of making that declaration, the more the audience was asking him questions, the more he was diving into areas that he might not have expected to expose at the time. Um, That is so profoundly intimate uh, that I don't think that that part could have ever happened twice. Um, I know that even uh, talks that uh, that I've done, uh, I can't do them twice. You know, I've been asked to do them again and I'm like, yeah, I'm somewhere else right now. Or I learned what I was going to learn from that. And, you know, to be real, I can't repeat that. Um, so I believe in watching how this guy expresses himself that he couldn't have done that last bit twice. Could I just jump in there for a second? Yeah. Because I, I think that also, I, I would love to hear more about how they how they did that because the, the, the comments from the, how spontaneous were the comments from the audience? You know, I think that was, that call and response uh, structure was, I think, I think you're, I, I think I agree with you, Rich, that it was kind of part of the spontaneity as opposed to here, here's a question that you should ask later. You know, it, it wasn't like that. And that was the thing that propelled him yeah, I agree. I don't know. I'm just thinking that that it was those que- a lot of the times it was mm-hmm. the questions that propelled him into the re- the self revelation. Yeah, there there's people in the audience. I mean, Sam, you were saying that you were getting tired of comedy specials uh, and that this one was different. One of the ways that it's different is the crowd involvement. First of all, I think. Uh, Jared Carmichael is really good at crowd work, even in his Saturday Night Live monologue, where typically mm-hmm. crowd work, unless it's part of the stunt, isn't a big thing. He was kind of bending over and directing things to certain people in the audience. This is what's happening with the crowd is just amazing. It, it would be a nightmare if this were any other kind of comedy special. But they've just got they, the audience kind of has its own agendas. I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure that, you know, having the audience yell, I'm audience member, you know, yell out. Are, are you still carrying your father's guilt around with you is something that doesn't happen at like Gallagher comedy shows and stuff. But, um, <laughs> but, but Sam, the, the, the way that he interacts with the audience, the way that he lets the audience kind of drive the conversation, there's this one woman who has this really loud, whoa, because he starts to talk about how some people didn't have a problem that he was gay, but then had a problem that he was dating white men. Uh, and that's when she, she kind of lets out the whoa. But there's something very exciting about the way the crowd's involved here. It's not like typical comedy, Sam. Yeah, and it's funny because, like, I feel like comedy is in a place where, like, heckling is really prevalent, and a lot of comedians, like, don't know how to handle 
audience interaction and that like improv off the cuff comedy and to see them not only like commenting but commenting such deep profound questions that like i wouldn't feel comfortable asking like one of my friends just like in private and gerard carmichael's answering these really deep questions about his identity and his family dynamic with like 50 people in the room going on hbo like i think that just added to uh the weight of the whole thing. But there's one thing I wanted to talk about, and it was the pacing of like how he talked. Yes. I thought it was interesting that they opened with jazz. And in my opinion, the way he was pacing himself was kind of like jazz. Like it was really off the cuff at moments. It was really intense, really fast paced, kind of very funny. And then at other moments, he was sitting there in pure silence and just kind of contemplating. There was this one shot right at the end where he stares right into the camera. And it's like at the most intimate, exposed moment for him. And I felt like a member of the audience. I kind of felt like screaming out, like, how are you doing this? Like, how are you even managing to talk about these issues and wear your heart on your sleeve like this? Like, I, I don't know. I just thought that this is the future of comedy. Like, it wasn't low-hanging fruit. He didn't talk about things that, like, every other comedian wants to talk about. It just felt like he was talking about himself. And that's really hard in today's world to not make it about the absurdity of today. But... It was all about him and it just felt like i don't know i felt like talking to your friends at like the end of a night and you just kind of talk about anything like i, I felt like i knew him afterwards so you so, know yeah go ahead I, yeah go ahead i was gonna say that um in uh in college i discovered miles davis and um and i've been paying a lot of attention to miles ever since um and so i've collected albums there's you know i i could i recall every image that i've ever seen of miles and this uh, this this sit down, I can't call it a stand up, the sit down routine um, felt very much like um, summoning Miles Davis for me. The way he moves his body uh, is the way Miles plays. It has that same kind of intentionality and then fluidity about it. Um, everything, the way the movie looked down to the red shirt. Uh, came straight out of um, uh, Miles's uh, Blue Note sessions. Um, the, and, and as we were mentioning, the coat that he puts on at the end to leave uh, the the Blue Note where he was performing is is the is the exact replica of a Miles Davis coat that I bought for myself when I was in college <laughs> uh, to run around the streets of Boston. Um, this thing summing up the spirit of Miles, right? And um, and there's a bunch of things in Miles's life that uh, that he neither confirmed nor denied, and didn't want to get engaged with around his bisexuality, and you know, and, and a whole bunch of things like that. And um, and this feels like he was picking up where the Miles story left off, and just kept going with the uh, with the improvisation of it uh, into you know, ideally what would be a a, a new future for comedy uh, that we could all get behind. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about that as we uh, head towards the end here. First of all, I want to say one thing. I don't think we've said the name Bo Burnham yet today. Uh, Bo Burnham, uh, the comedian Bo Burnham, directed this, uh, and and it really is lovingly directed, I think. I mean, we've really talked about how it's actually a very beautiful-looking uh, comedy special from beginning to end. It begins with this these shots of snow and, and ends with snow, and there's a little bit of James Joyce's The Dead going on in there. And then there's this red shirt, which is like this, you know, Rorschach blot. It's, um, you know, I mean, Rich sees Miles. Uh, I see R Richard Pryor wearing almost exactly the same kind of red shirt in one of his comedy specials. There's the sort of a lot that we can do with that. But, you know, 
I also wonder, Irene, you know, when Nanette, the Hannah Gadsby special came out, people said the same thing. This could be the future of comedy. This could be a new direction. Comedy will never be the same. And I kind of wonder about that. I, I wonder if, I mean, this seems so very special, you should pardon the expression, and particular to the world and persona of Jared Carmichael. I think it would be folly maybe for somebody else to try anything similar. I I don't know that this will alter comedy for anybody except him, but what are your thoughts? Uh, Well, first of all, I love Rich's coinage of the idea of sit-down comedy as opposed to stand-up comedy. But yeah, I mean, I, I kind of cringe at the thought of people trying to imitate that because you can't imitate it. And that's the thing about an improvisation as Rich is suggesting. I mean, you, and so for, for people to try to do that would just be, would, would be cringe inducing if they, if they weren't really speaking from their, from their heart, so to speak. So I think it, it, it really does depend on, on somebody that has some kind of, you know, that that's in touch with their own absolutely unique vision. And it's hard to imagine you know, how somebody else would, if somebody else did that, it would have to be in a different way. It couldn't, they couldn't be in touch with their unique vision, a la Jared Carmichael. I I, I think it would be very difficult. All right. We're probably going to have to stop there. Yeah. One more thing. Is that you, Rich? Yeah. Yeah. What what I was going to say is that um, I think Eddie Murphy uh, took, I think Richard Pryor established something that a bunch of comedians uh, took on. Um, without replicating Richard Pryor. You know, I think it set a tone and an attitude and a point of view without actually necessarily being Richard Pryor, Eddie Murphy, riffed on and a whole bunch of other folks. Um, it set off a light bulb for them in a way. And I think that it's possible to do this um, without aping Jared. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. Uh, and, and I wonder how many comedians will heed that call, though. I mean, to move away from the formulas that work, the formulas that they know work for them on their comedy specials. It'll have to be new people that, whose names we also don't know coming along and trying this stuff, I think. Um, all right. So we, we're going to take a little break here. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about uh, The Outlaws, which is a relatively new um, dramedy, serio-comic series like everything is uh, on Amazon Prime. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. 
We're back. This is The Nose. Our panelists today are Rich Holland, Sam Hadleman, and Irene Papoulis. We're going to talk about The Outlaws. It's a BBC One series. I think it might, be, it might have been called The Offenders uh, in England. A BBC uh, One series created by Stephen Merchant. Six episodes, um, and they're now available on Amazon Prime. Um, well, I can read Amazon's synopsis. It's a comedy thriller about a disparate uh, group of lawbreakers thrown together uh, to complete a community service sentence. Uh, so you get people from very different, very different backgrounds there. I, this is me talking now. Uh, none of them have cre- have committed terrible offenses, but they uh, are stuck in one of those community service or community payback. I think they they call it their uh, situations where they have to pick up trash and and put to rights a very disorderly. Uh, um, kind of warehouse site, uh, and they don't get along. They're very different. Then they start to bond. This is kind of familiar, uh, but it stars the ever delightful Christopher Walken, uh, who turned seventy nine last week. I guess he and Jared Carmichael both had birthdays, um, and St- Stephen Merchant, who's pretty familiar. You might recognize some other people like Ian McElhaney uh, from Game of Thrones, uh, Dolly Wells from Emmendal. Is that the name of the series? Uh, and uh, well, and Richard E. Grant is always great if we have time to visit uh, with Richard E. Grant, even in a very constricted role. So uh, let's play a little clip from the show. Uh, This is, uh, you're going to meet the character played by Christopher Walken. Uh, He is, you know, he is one of these kind of delightful, charmingly uh, crooked guys who lights up any room that he's in. Uh, And I believe right here he is meeting his fellow offenders. Greetings and felicitations. Hi, Pockets. What's taking chicken? Uh, it's finger licking chicken. Good morning, ladies. Can I just say, you're both looking beautiful. No, you can't. He can't tell you that you're beautiful? We didn't ask him for a verdict on our appearance. Sorry, but I said I got fine little ladies. You both right couple of swooners. Attention! Sit. Some people think that community payback is an easy option, a soft touch. Newsflash, it ain't. You will repay your debt to society by working the number of hours mandated by the court. My name is Diane Pemberley, I'm your supervisor, and I could be a good guy or a mean bastard. Your choice. Good guy, please. You don't choose. You said it was our choice. It was a figure of speech. It wasn't entirely clear. Are you a troublemaker? No, no. Definitely, definitely not. All right. So, Sam Hattleman, maybe get us <laughs> going. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you reacted to this series. Um, I didn't really know much about it going in, but I found myself, like, really pleasantly surprised. I love when there's such, like, a really random ensemble of characters from, like, shows. I can be like, oh, you were in that that one show. That's, like, my favorite thing on planet Earth. Um I love the lead. I think her name is Ram Barreto. Mm-hmm. She's so charming, such a good actress, plays her role perfectly as like this teen who's been crushed by the weight and expectations of her parents and is kind of acting out. And as someone who grew up in uh, Connecticut, that's a very familiar trope, uh, especially, uh, never mind. Uh, but it's, uh, uh, I don't know. I love the concept. Um, I, I really like how they're like sprinkling in little commentaries about class. I think uh, British TV can do a little bit more of a casual job of doing that than American television can sometimes. Um, I thought it was smart. I thought it was witty. I liked the writing. Um, I thought the plot was going in really interesting places. It wasn't exactly predictable. Christopher Walken's a great addition. Uh, it kind of reminds me of Chevy Chase on Community, but not horrible. 
um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Well, as long as we're making the comparison, I think Irene, you and I reacted very similarly that that Christopher Walken also reminds us quite a bit. That character reminds us quite a bit of Mickey, the character played by John Voight. John Voight may be a horrible person, but he is so good in Ray Donovan as Mickey. And Christopher Walken's the same kind of guy. There's in the in the sixth and final episode, there's a scene where things are really getting tense because this is it is a comedy thriller, and there's the bad guys are really scary, and so some of the situations are pretty dire, and you are not just free to, to laugh your little head off some of the time, but Walken at one point deserts the post that he's been assigned to by his friends and Confederates, winds up in a bar, and when they cut back to him, uh, he's he's dancing with a whole bunch of women in the bar to— uh, to don't you buy the Pussycat Dolls? <laughs> and and it just it's it's a real Ray Donovan kind of moment. But but Walken makes it just so charming too, Irene. And it's so great for an older person to sort of go beyond, you know, like he's just going to get with the young people. He doesn't mind, you know, and then they don't mind either. So it's kind of it, that's really fun. They see him as an old man at first, but then but then he just he he becomes a party guy. Yeah, just like Mickey does. So. That is great. You know, and um, Irene, yeah, Sam said uh, that the lead uh, was the uh, the character of Ronnie, Rianne Barreto. I'm not sure there is a lead in this. I think this really is a true ensemble piece uh, where, you know, where everybody kind of gets a chance to shine at certain moments. Yeah, I actually, I have to agree because, Sam, when you said that, I was thinking, wait, which one, which one was that? You know, who who's the lead? Yeah. Um, you could you could make a case for any of them being the lead, actually, I think, depending maybe it's also depending on who you identify with the most, you know, because maybe we all identify with different. I mean, I couldn't help but find myself identifying with the um, with Myrna, the activist and just the way her house looked was so familiar. <laughs> Not that I feel like I'm like her, but just the whole all the books all over and everything. The set was perfect. It was so good. And her attitude of trying to change the world in a certain way. I mean, and the, and the show kind of was on the edge of part of me was, you know, resisting the, the resistance to her as an activist. But I think it's sort of like it landed on the uh, on a sort of on a good on a, on a good note, I think, with her. But we could really pick anyone and talk about how they were they were, you know, central yeah. So, Rich, I, I think you were, I don't know, you, you were low on sleep when I heard from you. You seemed, a, you seemed, you seemed a less, less enchanted by this than maybe the other three of us were. Well, you know, I was actually, what I was was enchanted, period. Right. Um, I thought that it was just lovingly written, beautifully written. Uh, um, um, he took the time to actually get into each of the characters. There was this beautiful setup in the first episode where um oh god i forget names uh where the actress we were just talking about the uh the young woman who uh who i identify, yeah yeah exactly who i identify most with as um as you know uh, someone who takes on spite vengeance for the over demands of his par- of her parents <laughs> um and uh <laughs> there's a point where she's observing uh the yard where they're all working uh and and recognize like oh this is just like a peculiar cast of characters that you wouldn't expect to come together all at one point. And then just goes through and talks about, you know, which iconographic figure they each are playing. At that point, I expected that so early on, they exposed what could be the, you know, the tired hook 
of this series that they were then going to go and blow this thing apart and, you know, take things in the most unexpected directions. And it didn't. Everything just went where it was expected, where it's expected to go. Unlike Ray Donovan, where most of the characters are unlikable and you're hooked and glued to the scene watching Mickey, who's just a despicable guy, (laughs) you know, Uh, unlike um, this Christopher Walken's guy who in a way is Mickey, but is full of redemptive moments. Um, And uh, there's a piece there where for me, it didn't go into that unexpected space. It just did what I expected it to do particularly well. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's fair. Although one thing, so I, if you listen to the show a lot, and if Bill Usman were here, he would be happy to chronicle this too. I spent a lot of time complaining about the serial comic mode. Not that I don't like it, but I just think it's so pervasive. It's like this, you know, invasive species that's going to colonize all of entertainment. Nothing is ever really fully a comedy. Nothing is ever really fully a thriller. Uh, and, and this is certainly in that category. But one of the things that they did was they really, as I said before, I thought they made the scary parts really pretty scary. I mean, some of the people, and I should say that Merchant's co-creator on this is a guy named Elgin James, who has a gang background, who has done prison time, not for shoplifting in a mall, but for considerably more serious offenses. And I think he may have injected some of the grit into this. And even, like Sam, I don't know, there were some moments in the final episode where they find the mother uh, of the character Ben, and it, it turns out she's got a massive drug problem. He's been trying to take care of both her and his sister while uh, interfacing a lot with this, this really dangerous element. I don't know. I was kind of moved by that even. So it's it's weird. It's always a struggle. Like, can you continue laughing at stuff while you're really worried about somebody getting hurt or really moved by the pathos of it? I thought this managed somehow or other to do that, but I'm wondering how, how you process everything I'm talking about here. I mean, not to be this guy, but isn't that kind of the world we live in? Like, nothing's, like, exactly <laughs> funny. Like, the things that make me laugh are kind of horrible, too. Like, I, I don't know. It's, uh, I think, I, I'm, I think I, I disagree with you. I'm fine with uh, comedy, thriller, thriller, comedy. It's just a balancing act. It's, like, making sure that both are, it's like being, like, a switch hitter in baseball. You know what I mean? Like, as long as you can do both well, I'm totally fine with it. And I thought I totally agreed. Um, it was kind of funny. I like forgot that this was like a British show. So in the first episode, when uh, he's trying to rob those guys and they pull out machetes, I'm like, where's the strap? And then I was like, remembered, oh, this is the UK. Not everybody's armed. Um, <laughs> but I, uh, yeah, I thought it was really piercingly funny and it did the action stuff really well. Um, but I just think that's kind of the future of TV. Nobody just wants like a traditional sitcom uh, or a traditional thriller. Well, adding like a spice here or there of it being kind of funny, I'm all right with it. I, I think it's good for television. All right. So, I, yeah, I don't think the form itself is bad. Just there's too much of it. But I think the other question I have, and Irene, I'm going to play a clip here, is like, like I missed this the first time around. And this is an example of Merchant's a very funny writer, and he actually writes with kind of peculiar beats uh, the way that Tina Fey does to a certain degree. So I'm going to play a little clip. This is Stephen Merchant uh, in his role as Gregory Dillard and Eleanor Tomlinson as Lady Gabriella Penrose Howe, better known as Gabby. Um, I should say Eleanor. Tomlinson, very, very beautiful uh, actor who people remember the reboot of Poldark. She was Demelza. Uh, and I'm always especially impressed uh, when somebody who looks like that can also be really, really funny. So uh, here's the conversation they're having. She's going to, she's having this, she wants to stage this thing that sounds an awful lot like the Fire Festival. Uh, and she, they're working on the name for it. So this is B2. 
The festival's on your father's country estate, so what about a name which evokes the English country garden? You know, like, um, Country Fest. Sounds like Fest. Sunset Gardens. Sounds like a high-end hospice. Green sleeves? Toddler with a cold. No, it needs to be more rock and roll. How about rural carnage? No, I'm just picturing some kids caught in a threshing machine. What about something like Woodstock? You know, like, um, posh stock, livestock, beef stock, fish stock, lock stock. What's the USP of this festival? OK, um, I want it to be inclusive, um, you know, uniting people, um, exchanging ideas, so... Ooh, the sharing festival. No, we'll only attract swingers. We'll never get the lube off the croquet lawn. OK, meditation camp, mindfulness camp. Contemplation camp. Concentration camp. I don't think so. No? You know, naming things is really hard. Really makes me think twice about having a baby. Or a jewelry line. Okay, there's like 18 jokes in there, Irene. <laughs> so, and, so and, good. And, and, I'll never be able to hear green sleeves again without thinking of a toddler with a cold. <laughs> and I, th- I just think um, it's, yeah, it's worth mentioning yeah. that the comedy is, is delivered. Sometimes I was almost too nervous to pay attention to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, yeah, so what do you say about that? You know, I mean, it's, 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 um, it, it's fast and it's witty and it's funny and it's fun. Um, and there's words that we don't know as Americans that I love. I mean, not from that scene, but another scene, I learned the word banjax, B-A-N-J-A-X, which means smashed, you know, and, and they, they just sort of throw in words like that on a regular basis. Um, all yeah. All right, Rich, you get the last word to take us out here. Um, I'm going to take us out with this. Uh, Kafka was actually hilarious. <laughs> um, so, so I think that there is a, that there, that the space uh, where we bring um, good humor uh, to uh, to really intense and uh, and serious uh, situations with gravitas is critical. I think we take in the gravitas more if we're warmed up by the humor and vice versa. Um, so uh, so I think that the genre can work. Uh, I think that this series actually works. Um, uh, and there's more to do with it. I maybe season two, after all of the setup that's necessary for season one, uh, might be the kind of thing that I'm excited to see. But this, I enjoyed watching. All right. Uh, last thing I want to point out is that um, Stephen Merchant, in order to get Christopher Walken interested in this, um, had to fax the script to him because Christopher Walken, to this day, does not own a computer and has never owned a computer and has never sent an email oh and God. and does not own a cell phone. Uh, and occasionally, I think, is handed a cell phone on sets where they want to be able to ping him and get him back. <laughs> but other than that, he has never possessed a cell phone. So... Part of the, you know, otherworldly charm of the wonderful Christopher Walken. All right, let's take a break. We'll come back. We'll make some recommendations. And we're back. It's time for me to say some thank yous, especially to Cat Pastor, our wonderful technical producer, uh, and to Jonathan McPants, who produces pretty much all the episodes of The Nose, including this one. It's time to do some recommendations. Uh, we've got a great panel for you here today. Let's have Irene Papoulis get us going. 
Okay, I'm going to start with uh, two. Well, I have two. Um, the first one is um, to continue. I'm, I'm endorsing continue, continuing the work of Eric Bollert, who died. This, I think he's been on, he has been on this show, yep. I know. And he was, you know, his life was devoted to fighting disinformation and all, you know, sort of from the left, but skeptical of everyone. And, you know, he would ask, always ask questions like, why does the New York Times always interview Trump voters much more than they would ever vote, uh, interview Biden ones? And um, that that his work is so important and he died too young in an accident. And we, sh we should all fight this information and find out what the real truth is. Um, and the other one is I just happened to have finished reading a novel that's about also about gay men and secrets and British. It's, it's called The Line of Beauty by Alan Hollinghurst. And it's very, it's got, it's just got some beautiful passages of language, the way he puts together language and, and really explores that question of in, in the context of the, the 80s in Britain and um, the AIDS crisis a little bit he gets into. And it's just a beautiful novel. So The Line of Beauty. The Line of Beauty. And the author again? Alan Hollinghurst. Oh, okay. Um, so uh, Sam Hattleman, uh, what about you? Uh, I'm going to throw out two recommendations. Uh, the best show on television is back, Atlanta. Uh, it is like Seinfeld meets the Twilight Zone. It is, again, I watch it. As you guys know from me being on the show, I watch a stupid amount of television. It is the best show on TV, and it has been for a while. Definitely check it out if you haven't. Yeah, uh, the second, we, we need to oh. figure out how to deal with that uh, on the nose. We did uh, uh, an episode about Atlanta's first season, uh, but I feel like now that they're rolling into the third and the third's really different and stuff like that, we may have to revisit it somehow. Anyway, continue, Sam. Uh, and this was probably like one of the more fun days uh, for music releases in a while. So I'm going to give out an album that I will be listening to this weekend. Uh, it's called Ramona Park Broke My Heart by Vince Staples. Uh, Vince Staples is a... West Coast artist. Uh, I promise it's not too jarring for anybody over the age of 50 who's listening. I promise you can listen to it. I wouldn't have you go home and listen to something that you'd be embarrassed to listen to in traffic. Uh, you'll really enjoy it. He's very introspective, very interesting instrumentals. Uh, I think you'll like it. Again, it's Ramona Park, Broke My Heart by Vince Staples. All right. Thanks so much, Sam. Uh, Rich Holland, how, how about you? Sure. Um, I have two. Uh, I'm picking up on my uh, my affection for Jared Carmichael uh, right now, and uh, so I'm going to make two recommendations of of two folks for who two black men for whom I've had very similar affection. Uh, the first I mentioned earlier is Miles Davis. Uh, listen to again, it's worth it. Uh, complete remote studio sessions from fifty two to fifty four. Um, it's just absolutely beautiful. And there are parts in this where you could hear these professions of love, uh, professations of he's professing love in some parts of this in a way um, that I've never really heard before or since. Uh, the other uh, piece that I'd love to recommend is from the year I was born, 1963, uh, The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin. Mm. Um, it's uh, it's this really sort of intense look at this growing civil rights movement um, from someone who is being so intensely honest and careful and thoughtful about everything that he's experiencing through it. And uh, much like um, Carmichael, he touches on uh, what it means to uh, to be queer in a black community as well as part of uh, some of the stuff that um, uh, we need to liberate in order to be liberated. 
Um, so, uh, James Baldwin, uh, The Fire Next Time. Uh, both both great uh, recommendations. So I'm going to, uh, first of all, I, I happened to rewatch uh, Margin Call, the J.C. Chandor uh, movie about the financial collapse. And, and first of all, it's a great movie. It really might be the best movie made about the 08 uh, collapse. N- no love lost for uh, for the big short. That's a great movie, too. Uh, there's something about this that's special. But I, I especially was watching, as I often do, Kevin Spacey. And I know he's been canceled. And I know that his behavior uh, has apparently not always been exemplary. I'm just sort of not willing to give up Kevin Spacey. I'm not willing to give up an actor who can do that. Uh, and I could say that about a lot of, I could say that about K-Pax. I could say a lot about a lot of Spacey performances. But what he, the humanity that he summons to the role in Margin Call is just so powerful and so remarkable. And there's so much skill behind it. And yeah, I'll probably get emails or <laughs> tweets or something. I don't care. I don't care. I'm, you know, it's 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 the Brian Francis Slattery rule, which is uh, the, the, his cancellation formula is you have to sort of divide the enormity of whatever the offense is by the value that the artist has, the the value of the work the artist creates. You have to come up with some kind of coefficient because they're not all the same. So anyway, I'm not. I, I have no influence over anybody, but I'm not. I don't want to give up Kevin Spacey. He's too good. Uh, uh, and I also recommend the first episode, because that's all I've seen, of Tokyo Vice. Even if you're not going to watch the whole thing, it's based <clears throat> on some memoirs of uh, uh, a, a reporter named Jake Edelstein, who became the first crime reporter at a, at a famous Tokyo newspaper. But the first episode is directed by Michael Mann. You don't get to see Michael Mann direct a lot of television. And, and he really Michael Mann's that first episode. So he, I, don't, I don't even know if I'll watch the whole thing, but you got to you just, you, you know, he really puts you right there in Tokyo. If you like Stephen Merchant, uh, I would recommend watching at least some of the series Extras, which he and Ricky Gervais did together. And he sort of is the second banana in that one, as he often is. But it's a lot of fun. And there's some just insane cameos in, in Extras. I'm not even going to say who, because uh, I don't want to wreck it. But it's a terrific series kind of about the world of movies and show business and television. All right, we're going to stop there. What a great panel. Uh, thanks very much to Rich and to Sam and to Irene and to all of you for listening. Yeah, we all be laughing, talking, joking. Talking about this and talking about that and talk about everything as a matter of fact. Oh yeah. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.